Food writing in its initial stages had a particular audience and a particular face. Columns were written by older white males critiquing restaurants on taste and texture, atmosphere and service. Today, the structure of writing, of composing food columns, is outdated. As food writing and media have further evolved, this special medium has taken on many different shades, stories, and personalities. Writers pen food stories about living on Mars, deliver cutting-edge research and interviews from chefs and farmers, and explore gender, race, and nationality in food. Ruth Reichel has witnessed the weight of this transition as an insider in the food media empire. She wrote for the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times as restaurant critics, published books about her experience in food media, and served as the Gourmet Magazine's editor-in-chief during the 90s. Ruth joins me on this episode to discuss her journey to food media, her new book, Save Me the Plums, a memoir about her time at Gourmet Magazine, and the future of food journalism and magazines. I'm so excited for you to listen. You're listening to Gouda Talks, a podcast about food and culture, hosted by Jessing on WHRB 95.3 FM. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Ruth. So first and foremost, I'd love to hear about your first foray into food media. When did that start for you? My father was a book designer, and he spent part of his weekends prowling through used bookstores looking for ideas. And I would go along with him as a little girl. And he would usually find a pile of you know, colorful magazines for me to read while he was prowling through the stacks. And one day he picked up a pile of really old, I mean, older than I was at the time, vintage gourmet magazines. And from the first moment that I read, I, mean, I was just very lucky because the first story that I opened to was written by the Poet Laureate of Maine, who was a Pulitzer Prize winner and a beautiful writer. And his his words were so evocative that I saw for the first time, I was eight, that nonfiction, real life, could be as magical as a fairy tale. And from that moment on, I started reading Gourmet Magazine, and I got more and more interested in food. And when you started writing about food for Gourmet Magazine, and then also for, like, as a critic for the New York Times, what details did you pay most attention to? And was that different than what you had expected in the beginning? That's, that's a great question. Um, I started out, I mean, I, I was, you know, living in a commune in Berkeley, working in a restaurant, and I had the opportunity to write restaurant reviews for uh, New West Magazine, which was just starting in San Francisco. I thought that restaurant reviews were boring. And I really didn't want to write, you know, this has too much salt. And I didn't want to write consumer reviews. This is like where you go out and spend your money. And I decided that I would write little short stories and just weave the restaurants in through them. I mean, remember, this is this is the mid-70s. It was the time of new journalism. And I probably wrote the weirdest restaurant reviews that have ever been written. I wrote stories that were set on Mars. I wrote Westerns. I wrote love stories. I wrote things in diary form. Um, I really stretched the form of a restaurant review as far as I could. They had a kind of small cult following in the Bay Area. 
And then I got asked to be the restaurant critic of the Los Angeles Times. And I was quickly told that I could not do what I'd been doing, that I couldn't make things up. I couldn't pretend that, you know, I was, you know, living in the 18th century. And I thought, well, what am I going to do now to make them interesting? And I realized that what I should do is try and take my readers along with me and make them try and taste the food. And so I really started trying to describe texture, what it felt like to be in the room, um, the sounds around me, to literally make you feel as if you were sitting in a seat with me. And I think the best compliment I ever got was a reader called me up one day and said, I wish you would write more more reviews of steakhouses. And I said, why? And he said, well, I had open heart surgery 10 years ago and I'm not allowed to eat meat anymore. And the only time I ever get to taste it is when you review steak restaurants. So would you please do more? I'm wondering, now that you brought up that point, do you think food media has um, gone down that path? Has it evolved somehow? Food, food media it very much reflects the state of food in the culture. And when I started writing about restaurants and started writing about food, I mean, most Americans didn't care much about food. It was something that was reserved for the elite, the wealthy. But we've gone through a real revolution in food. Food is now a very important part of popular culture. Happily, food writing has evolved to reflect that. So you have a whole generation now of young food writers who are addressing current issues. I mean, it's no longer so important to, you know, put people in the restaurant, but it is important to talk about where the food comes from. Is it sustainable? Who's eating the food? And certainly in the field of restaurant criticism, I mean, for the longest time in America, restaurant reviews were written mostly by white males middle-class white males. And now we have, you know, young people, people of color, um, you know, people who identify themselves um, in different ways, gender, and they're thinking about race and gender issues in restaurants, which is appropriate for this moment in time. Has the internet culture also influenced that? How, what is your take on seeing, you know, social media like Twitter and other types of internet culture drivers change the conversation about food media in the same way? I mean, internet culture has changed not just the conversation about it, it's changed everything. I mean, it's changed the way all of us experience the world. And it's had a really profound effect on food media and the way food is being written about. And most of that, I think, is good. I mean, you know, when food criticism, restaurant criticism started in America, it was it was pretty much Craig Claiborne who invented it. And there was one voice in the room. Today, there are hundreds, thousands of voices. I mean, you if you want, if you just want to know how do you go out and spend your money, you can go on Yelp or Twitter and get, you know, hundreds of opinions. And what's great about that is it means that you as a consumer have to make up your own mind. I mean, you have to be a smart consumer of media. It also means that the people who write about food have to be a lot better, smarter, more informative than the people who do it for free. And so it's really changed the role of the food critic. 
one thing that came to mind is now that you're now that this change has happened with more conversations on diversity and gender and class and sustainability in food media, what is one piece that you would want to write today? You know, there are lots of really good people out there writing um, really meaty pieces about food. Um, but I feel like this the one issue that gets very short shrift in the conversation that we're having about food right now is social justice for food workers. If I were going to be writing a really meaty piece these days, that's where what I would be addressing. You know, the fact that um, in the state of New York where I live, farm workers don't have the right to a day off. They don't have the right to unionize. They don't have the right to a day of rest. I mean, it's ridiculous in modern America. I would be writing about the conditions for people in meatpacking plants. I would be talking about, you know, these, these people, they're the most vulnerable workers in America, and we need to change that. Taking the conversation back to some of your recent work, Save Me the Plums, when did you decide to start writing this um, memoir? You know, from the moment that I was hired at Gourmet Magazine, I knew that I was going to one day write this book because the world of Condé Nast that I entered, a world with may I say, is now completely gone. The closest thing I could compare it to is the Court of Versailles under Louis XIV. I mean, it was a world of enormously privileged people who loathed each other, who, I mean, it had its own language, it had courtiers. It, it was a world of, you know, in wonderful excess and great intrigue. And I went in there as you know, someone who had, you know, never made much money. My formative years were all spent in Berkeley. And I sort of like went in like Cinderella, wide-eyed. And I thought, I want to write about this. And the other thing I really wanted to write about was when I was given the enormous privilege of uh, shepherding the, this 60-year-old magazine, we, the entire staff, really wanted to change the conversation about food in America. And I wanted to talk about that time. It was 1999. Everything about food was changing in America, and we really wanted to have a publication that didn't just talk about recipes and restaurants and fancy vacations. We wanted to talk about you know, serious issues along with you know, beautiful food pictures and wonderful recipes, but we were all determined to get really wonderful writing in there. And you know, I wanted to talk about that moment in American food and that moment in American publishing because I don't think that any editors will ever be given the kind of latitude I was given again, where I, I had Cy Newhouse, the owner of Condé Nast, who really trusted the public and really believed that if you gave people a quality product, they would appreciate it. And who said to me, make the best magazine you possibly can and money's no object. And I felt like that needed to be celebrated and recognized. For this book, at least, and also your previous books, the timing is so interesting because you did write this about 10 years after Gourmet Magazine was murdered when Gourmet Magazine was folded. So what is the timing for thinking of all this, these books? Did you have to let it settle? or? Well, yeah, I mean, when, when uh, Condé Nast decided to fold Gourmet, I was devastated and depressed and I knew I wanted to write the book, but I, I had always said, if 
you know, if I didn't have a day job, I would write uh, fiction. So the first thing I tackled was a novel. And then when that was done, I really wanted to write about how going into the kitchen had pretty much saved my life. So I wrote My Kitchen Year, which was a cookbook about the, the joy of being in the kitchen. And then I thought, okay, now, you know, enough time has passed and now it's time to really look back and write about the whole gourmet experience. This this book, it was difficult to write. My editor, um, my brilliant, wonderful editor just kept saying, less about the magazine and more about you. And what does it feel like to be someone who's never been a boss before to become a boss and talk about what it's like to be a working mom. So you know, I gradually filtered all of that in there, in there. And when you were writing this book, did you have to, were the memories coming to you? Did you have to consult people? Yeah, I'm just really curious about, since it has been 10 years. Well, I did take notes. I mean, as I said, from the moment that I got there, I knew that I would want to write about it one day. So every day that I was at Gourmet, at the end of the day before I left, I would print out three or four emails I had gotten that day just so I would have a record of what was going on in the office. And so I had that. I had this enormous trove of, you know, just daily notes of what was going on. And I also, I'm a pack rat. I I save everything. So I had, you know, folders on every special issue we did. And when something momentous happened, you know, when Cy Newhouse came to tell me that I was about to get a new publisher, that they were taking the person I had worked with for five years, I I sat down and wrote about what the conversation was. So I was keeping very good notes along the way. I'm so excited to read it. What is your opinion on food magazines today? And do you think Gourmet would also have a space at the table? Oh, I think Gourmet would definitely have a space at the table if it existed. And there are lots of small food magazines that I really love. Um, Cherry Bomb. I'm really sad that Lucky Peach has vanished. There's a Scandinavian magazine called Fool that I think is wonderful. And you can sort of go on and on. I'm watching with great interest um, how Food and Wine magazine is being reinvented, and I have high hopes for it. Um, I think there's some remarkable magazine work being done online. Eater has become a you know really substantial publication that tackles sort of everything in the food world in a really good way. There's a lot going on. You know, often I just look around and think, I wish I still had a magazine because there's so much to say. I do read magazines and food magazines, but there's also this advent of like YouTube videos and Netflix. What role do magazines have in the space for food? Well, I mean, it's, it's a really great question because certainly the the great moment for Food culture in America really started with food TV. And, you know, food TV has gotten better and better, and it continues to be, to, to mature and get better and um, be increasingly compelling. It's, it's, a, it's a great question because I, I do think that magazines have to figure out what it is that they can do better and differently. And the one thing that I think you know, print is really good at is firing your imagination and being inspirational. And if I had a magazine today, that's the direction I would be going in. I mean, we did at Gourmet, we did these, you know, extremely beautiful um, centerfold food 
uh, shoots. And, you know, I would think of people lying in bed and sort of dreaming themselves into those foodscapes. And that's certainly one place that print can go, that you can't do it online as well, and you can't do it in uh, video as well either. I mean, you can do something really remarkable with the printed page. Thank you so much, Ruth. I know this is how much time we allocated for it. I want to be respectful, but it means a lot for you to sit down and talk. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it.